Have an idea for a podcast or a live talk show? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your show. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. Theoamnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. All right, welcome back to The Permanent Record. We've been on a long break, but we're back with a very special episode. I'm Josh Spickler, the Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. We're kicking off with a special two-part series featuring interviews with Emily Bazelon and Nora Jackson. Emily is here with me in the OAM Network studio at Crosstown Concourse. Nora's interview will be up soon after this one. Emily, welcome to Memphis and welcome back to The Permanent Record. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for bringing me. And also tonight we have uh, folks in the studio. I'm not going to ask you guys to cheer anything, but welcome to each of you. I will ask Emily to verify that you're actually here. Emily, is there a studio audience here? They are really here. It is true. But yeah, it's too early to ask them to cheer. Right. That's what I thought. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. And and again, thanks, Emily. Emily, you're in town uh, for a special appearance later tonight with Nora Jackson in support of your new book. Um, You and Nora are going to talk about that case, the power of the elected prosecutor uh, and, and and. Nora's experience through all of that. Uh, but your book, uh, Charged, is about prosecutors more generally. It's about the outsized role they play in American in the American criminal legal system. Uh, you've written about bullying. You appear weekly on a political uh, podcast, GabFest, the Slate Political GabFest. Uh, you've covered a variety of issues. So why prosecutors and why now? I started thinking a lot about prosecutors in 2010. I was working on a story about the three strikes law in California, which is super harsh criminal justice measure. And there was a ballot initiative to change it and make it a little less harsh. And one of the people supporting that ballot measure was the district attorney at the time in Los Angeles, who was this conservative Republican named Steve Cooley. So it was kind of surprising that he was interested in making this law more merciful. And I called him to ask him why. And he told me a story about a man named Gregory Taylor, Um, Gregory Taylor was homeless and he had unscrewed the screen door to a food pantry to get inside one night because he was hungry. And this case came into the Los Angeles DA's office when Cooley was a young prosecutor and it didn't land on his desk. It landed on the desk of the prosecutor next to him. And that prosecutor charged Gregory Taylor with a third strike. And Cooley is watching this case um, and thinking that he would not have done that, that it seemed like a very harsh measure to take in this kind of circumstance. And then Gregory Taylor was sentenced to life in prison because of this offense. And so that case really stuck with Cooley and made him think, someday I'm going to be in power. I'm going to try to do something about this. And he had changed the policy in Los Angeles so that people with these kinds of minor third crimes would not get a life sentence. And now he was campaigning for this ballot initiative. And so that's what we were talking about and what I was writing about. 
But I thought to myself, wait a second. The fact that this man's case file landed on the desk of one prosecutor instead of another in the same office determined the whole course of his life. I had just never thought about that before. The idea that a prosecutor's individual discretion could have so much sway um, over another human being. Once I noticed it, I started to see it everywhere. I write about the legal system a lot. So there were plenty of opportunities to kind of notice prosecutors. And then I read a terrific book by a law professor um, who'd been a public defender. Her name's Angela J. Davis. It was about, it was called Arbitrary Justice. It's about the power of prosecutors. It came out long before my book. And part of me thought like, okay, well, she covered that. I don't need to write about this um, topic. But then other research emerged, um, particularly from a Fordham law professor named John Pfaff, about how the charging decisions of prosecutors have become more likely to be felonies as opposed to misdemeanors in the same years that incarceration really rose in the United United States. And that was super interesting to me because it shows that this part of the process that prosecutors fully control seemed to be very much tied to this huge spike in incarceration. And then I thought, okay, now I can see this empirical support for something I've been observing, and maybe I can add to this picture by telling stories as well as offering analysis that that would be the contribution I could bring as a journalist. So that's the sort of evolution of my book. Yeah, and as we all in the room, I think, know uh, that one of those stories was uh, was Nora Jackson's story, a case from right here in Memphis. And yesterday, the Daily Memphian ran a, a Q&A in which the reporter sort of challenged uh, the appropriateness of Nora's case uh, as support for this book's premise. So um, the premise obviously being that the prosecutors are critical actors in the system and, and largely uh, or very responsible for a good portion of mass incarceration. So... Um, do you get that challenge often or is that a special Memphis thing? And uh, and can you recap why you think her case is important? It's a special Memphis thing because my book as a whole has two stories. Right. Nora's is one of them. And when I set out to write my book, I thought, okay, I want to talk about ordinary, completely legal prosecutorial power. And so for that part of my book, I'm reporting in Brooklyn um, about a young black kid who was caught with a gun, a very typical case, not someone who's innocent, not someone who's challenging the facts of his conviction. It's really a story about proportional punishment and about the outsized role that prosecutors and charging and plea bargaining played in his case. His name is Kevin. I also, though, wanted to tell an unusual story about what I see as a prosecutorial abuse of power. And I think that Nora's case plays that role in the book because of the reasons her conviction was overturned by the Tennessee Supreme Court. So you have a prosecutor, Amy Wyrick, who's the trial lawyer in, in Nora's case, and she doesn't disclose evidence that could have helped Nora prove her innocence. And then she also makes a statement at the end of the trial that violates Nora's right not to incriminate herself. Nora's chosen not to testify. That's a decision that lots of people charged with crimes or their lawyers make on their behalf because it's just very uncertain how that will go. It's really important not to then cast aspersions on that decision. But at the end of this trial, Amy Weirich says in front of the jury to Nora, just tell us where you were, Nora, as if suggesting that this is an unanswered question that Nora's kind of left um, left unanswered and that that implicates her. So for those two reasons, the evidence that wasn't disclosed and that improper statement, Nora's conviction is overturned. 
And um, and yet Amy Weirich becomes the elected DA in Memphis after this case. And, and I would argue in part because of all the publicity that came from Nora's trial. So to me, that was a really interesting narrative arc. I really started, honestly, with my interest in the Shelby County DA's office and, and in Amy Weirich as this kind of figure, because the office has a pattern of not disclosing evidence that had not been fixed or addressed over time. And then because of Weirich's rise in the system. Those things were really interested, interesting to me. And then Nora's case was a like very um, great story. You know, part of my job is to get people to turn the pages, right? So Nora's case lends itself to the kind of story that I hoped that readers would be curious to learn more about. Yeah. And um, the United States has elected prosecutors, which um, I have, you know, been following you on this book tour and, and listen to a lot of podcast interviews that you've done. And you very rarely just say prosecutor. You always say elected prosecutor. And I've heard you say that that's, that's the thing you want us all to learn the most about this book is that prosecutors are elected. Um, it is rare, right, in, in the world to have elected prosecutors. Yeah. As far as I know, we are the only country that elects prosecutors, which might suggest, if we're being humble, that it's not the greatest idea, that maybe (laughs) there's a reason nobody else does this. Um, Our tradition of electing prosecutors started uh, kind of the mid-19th century, and it really is sort of uh, an afterthought or a footnote to the decision states made to elect judges. And the thinking behind that, and I suppose electing district attorneys, was that it would make them more accountable to local communities. The problem with electing prosecutors and judges is it then makes them very responsive to politics. And it has turned out in the kind of most of the time since we started having common elected DAs and judges that the politics have seemed super sensitive to law and order concerns. And DAs have assumed that the way to win election and stay in office is to be as tough on crime as possible to say, you know, I'm going to go after this bad guy. I got the death penalty. These were the sort of badges of victory, of success for district attorneys. And again, that I think that political um reality that they saw, that's another factor in driving up our incarceration rates. Yeah. Uh, you, you called our eight-year terms. We have eight-year terms in, in Tennessee. Um, not terribly democratic yesterday. What's most common? What's the, what have you uh, observed across the country in terms of the length of, a, of an elected prosecutor's term? So 45 states elect prosecutors. As far as I know, every other state has four-year terms. Don't, you know, I should check myself on that, but I have not heard of another eight-year term. And the problem, obviously, with really long terms is that it gives voters fewer opportunities to weigh in and make a change and creates, I think, this impression that this office is permanent, uh, that maybe you don't even really. It's almost like a retention election for a judge where you sort of assume the person will stay in office as opposed to having a full challenge. And in fact, this is also a problem even in four-year terms. A lot of DAs stay in office for a very long time. It sort of functions as a lifetime job. And it's only really been recently that we've started to see more challenges of incumbent district attorneys around the country. Um, So since the book and the New York Times magazine piece that you wrote, have you continued to follow uh, our district attorney general? And and what have you you observed about how she's um, responded to some of this criticism or just the environment around her? 
Well, I guess the first thing I'll say about this is that uh, before my book was published, I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine about Amy Weirich and Nora's case. And she had a very regressive, uh, sorry, excuse me. She had a very aggressive response at the time, which was to try to circulate this hashtag pro crime NY times and really to go after me personally. Um, and I, at the time thought, huh, like maybe this will work. It was very Trumpian, right? The idea of this attacking the press as opposed to really addressing the facts of the case. And, you know, I think, Wyrick has been very defensive about her office's record on this problem of disclosing evidence. As far as I know, the only thing she said about it is like people make mistakes. Here are all the cases in which we did properly disclose evidence in the offices of other DAs who are really serious about reform and tackling the problem of wrongful convictions and of just preventing the abuse of power by prosecutors across the board. You, I've seen much more self-reflection and much more interest in looking at past cases and making sure that they have been justly resolved. So we're now at a point where I think about 25 DAs across the country have started units, conviction review units, to look at cases where there's concern about whether they've been fairly handled. Some prosecutors are even talking now about starting Sentences, starting units to review overly long sentences. When I asked Wyrick about the idea of a conviction review unit, she said my whole office is already that unit, which to me suggested a real unwillingness to kind of go back and grapple with what is actually quite a troubling record and pattern of um, misconduct and errors in the Shelby County DA's office. I do think in the last several months, Wyrick has been making some gestures toward more mercy. Uh, I think one example is that she's talked about and I hope has actually implemented a policy to not prosecute people for having their driver's licenses suspended, which that's an important gain, right? I mean, that is really a way in which people are crippled from being able to make a living. I don't think, though, that it's necessarily um, a sign of really major change. And so I think one question for the community of voters in Memphis in 2022, the next time that there is a DA's election, is whether your DA reflects the values uh, you want for your community in the criminal justice system. Yeah. You grew up in Philadelphia, is that right? I did. And and that community has elected someone who reflects very different values in their DA's office than the previous uh, DA's there. Uh, a guy named Larry Krasner, who's kind of the figurehead for this uh, so-called progressive prosecutor movement. Talk to us a little bit about how that community's responded. I know the police uh, folks don't like him much at all, but uh, as I have followed it, uh, the, there's there's not blood running in the streets, right? Crime is not skyrocketing. It's it's going okay. Tell us a little bit about Krasner's experience. Yeah, so I should start by saying that one of my sisters works for Larry Krasner. Ah, I always right. want to disclose that up front. Um, so, you know, to set the table on Philadelphia a little bit, if you go back to when I was growing up in Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s, in the 70s, we had this police chief and mayor named Frank Rizzo, who was known as one of the most racist, brutal figures in city politics across the country. And so then even after Rizzo, we had um, a district attorney who was like the death penalty queen of district attorneys in America. She was charging the death penalty more than anyone else. And there was this assumption at a time when crime was high in Philadelphia that this was all necessary for people's safety and a real willingness to lock people up. 
So I'm just telling you all that because there could not be a bigger sea change from that history to Larry Krasner, who spent his entire career before he became the DA suing the Philadelphia cops. (laughs) That was what he did. He was a civil rights attorney. He came into office with a constituency of supporters that was just utterly different from previous DAs. Really low-income people, many people of color in the city saying, we want a more fair criminal justice system that serves us well. And we don't think that sending everyone to prison is making us safer. It's actually ripping our community apart. It means we have so many young black men who are not home. And uh, and we want to we want to change that. So Krasner is a really um kind of in your face guy and he has taken on the Philadelphia Police Department uh to some degree some of the judges in Philadelphia who aren't happy with some of the things he's doing. So you're seeing now a kind of questioning of all the power that prosecutors have, right? <laughs> Turns out if they want to use their power to do mercy, well, some of the other parts of the system where people have an interest in maintaining the status quo, they're not so interested eh, anymore. How that works. Yes. And so I think Krasner has seen some challenges, but you're absolutely right. You know, there has been a spike in shootings this summer in Philadelphia. But if you look at crime across the board, it has not risen. And I think that there are a lot of Krasner's constituents who do very much feel good about the work that he's doing to bring down the incarceration rate, empty the jail, introduce more fairness and accountability into the system. And he's, he's doing this with largely the same staff, correct? He didn't have a whole bunch of people leave. Well, he he asked, I think, about 30 people to leave um, and then a bunch more walked out the door out of. Out of a cup. Uh, what is it? I think it's like, mm, I can't remember. We could, it's we can half, left. right? No, it's it's, no, no, no. But half, he right? at, but a lot of the people who left were in supervisory positions. Yeah, yeah. Right, so right. it's, I think one, I've watched in a number of offices because this trend of people making progressive prosecutors taking over a big city DA's office, this has been happening in a number of cities across the country, in Texas, in Chicago, in Florida, like give you a lot, Denver, lots of examples. And there's a real um, divide. Some people do fire a lot of this middle layer or quietly ask people to leave and other people keep everybody in office. And I think that it's the supervisors who can be a real uh, block to change because they've just been raised on a different way of doing things. It's hard to be told, you know, you've been doing your job wrong all this time. We want you to do it differently. And so I think what Krasner decided is that there were people who were just not down for his program. He was going to replace them. And he's also done a lot of recruiting at law schools across the country, mm-hmm. trying to make the argument, maybe you think you want to be a public defender, but actually you will have more <laughs> power if you come and work for me. Wow. Wow. Uh, do you see similarities uh, in the communities? Do you see a common thread in the communities that have elected people like Larry Krasner? Yeah, I think there's a few common threads. I mean, one is that for better or worse, it does not take that many voters to actually make a big change in the DA's office. These are what are called low salience races. People don't pay that much attention. Turnout isn't high. So if you can get your folks to come out for you, you can actually like 
win handily. And so I think what we've seen are cities like Chicago or Dallas or Houston, where there's some real strong local organizing. And then folks make a priority out of the DA's office as like a tangible change they can offer their constituency. And then they work really hard. Some of these places are also cities with real problematic records of wrongful convictions. I'm thinking right now, especially in Texas and Dallas and San Antonio and Houston, that's part of the pattern. Chicago, a place with a very um, contested, fraught relationship between neighborhoods, certain African-American neighborhoods and the police. And so then there's sort of room, a kind of hunger, I think, for reform and change. And also a sense that, as I was saying before, that this long-standing assumption that the only way to keep people safe was to lock up anyone accused of doing anything wrong for a really long time, that it was time to rethink that because of the tremendous human and actual just fiscal cost. Right, right. Switch gears. I, I can't have you here uh, on a microphone with me and not talk politics because you you are one of the co-hosts of the Slate Political Gap Fest, which is one of my favorites, and I've been listening to it for years. And, Excellent. Uh, we're in the middle of... Uh, always, it seems, in the middle of crazy national politics. But um, a bit of a serious question. Not far from here yesterday, there was an ice raid in Mississippi, and, and more than 600 people were rounded up at poultry plants. And um, uh, and the timing of that, I just it, it, it really sort of troubles me. And, and I just wonder if, if you have a sense of whether we have another, uh, what do we have, 14 months to the election of uh, curiously timed ice actions, the largest ice action, I believe, of its type in history, maybe. Um, I don't know if you guys talked about that in the podcast this week, but uh, do you have thoughts on on how far it can possibly go? Uh, and was it politically motivated? I mean, what do you what do you think? You know, I mean, I think the timing is striking, obviously, because of the shootings in Dayton and especially right. El Paso that made so many Latino people feel vulnerable and kind of hunted. And then you have ICE show up. Um, and, I, you know, one of the really disturbing parts of the news reports is that there were actually children like left right. stripped of their parents, left without anywhere to go or anyone to take care of them, which seems um, just incredibly inhumane and upsetting. You know, I think that. Look, I mean, when you elect the president, he gets to pick the people who run our immigration services and they have the discretion to pick up people who are here and are, who are undocumented. This is like uh, a reality of American law. However, the idea of doing raids inside the country, now that's something we really have seen um, very little of. There were some examples in the Bush administration, I think a couple in the early Obama years, but not on this scale. And given President Trump's rhetoric, which, you know, talks about immigrants as invading and is um, incredibly focused on their them as this danger, right? Even though immigrants commit fewer crimes than native-born Americans, we hear all the time about their criminality from Trump. Given all of that, I think this does feel like it has this political edge to it. And you can certainly see why it's scaring people. And I guess the last thing I'll say about this is that if the problem is immigrants taking jobs from um, Americans who are here legally, why don't we ever hear about employers getting in trouble right. for these kinds of situations? These workplace raids get taken out on the backs of the workers, not the corporations. Yeah. Um, well, so you're in Tennessee. 
elections, presidential elections in particular, are kind of a foregone conclusion in states like this. Uh, are there, uh, there are some proposals that would put more states in play, some ways of tweaking the Electoral College, if not doing away with it? What do you think of those? What are some of your favorites? I mean, look, the Electoral College is causing so much trouble in this country right now. And I think if you live almost anywhere, it's very frustrating <laughs> right. to think that you're casting a vote for president. That does not matter. There's just something crazy about that, that unless you sort of move to a swing state, it's irrelevant. I live in Connecticut. I am, My vote is also completely irrelevant. The solution that I like the best is this idea of, uh, which is has growing support of the states forming a compact in which they all agree to give their electoral votes right. to the winner of the popular vote in the next presidential contest. The problem is there are not yet enough states that have signed on to make a, to have the majority of the electoral votes. And you need that before it can really take effect. And then you worry that, uh, you know, swing states are not going to want to give up their power that maybe given right now, it looks like the Electoral College would advantage the Republican candidate that maybe predominantly Republican states will also be reluctant. And so the list just isn't big enough. But that looks to me like the best way around the provision in the Constitution that provides for the Electoral College without this remedy. You're talking about a constitutional amendment, and we have not had one of those since right. the night, right? Then, right. yeah. <laughs> what about the what about this Democratic primary? Do you think uh, with uh, a couple of uh, candidates of color uh, this time around that the South will have, uh, particularly South Carolina, will have a, a, a bigger influence in that primary than it, than it has. What do you, what do you think about Booker and, and Harris and, and those candidates in the South? It, it's possible that uh, the voters of color in the democratic primary in South Carolina, and then a whole bunch of States on super Tuesday will help Harris and Booker. I also think though, that so far we're still seeing strong support for Joe Biden right. from those folks. Um, and that's kind of typical. Black voters tend to be very practical. They think about, okay, who can win? You know, even when Barack Obama ran, it wasn't until black voters could see real support from white voters for him that they were willing to change horses. Right. Right. Um, <coughs> Sorry. Bless you. Um, you wrote a really great profile of Elizabeth Warren not long ago. Uh, she's a top tier uh, candidate right now, polling really well. What do you, after getting to know her so well, what do you find as her biggest weakness or, or greatest barrier to overcome to win that nomination? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I started working on this profile of Elizabeth Warren back in February, she did not look like a top tier candidate. And <laughs> it was super easy to talk to her. It felt very low stakes to me. I was like, oh, she's not going to be anywhere in this race. It's I can write whatever I want. And she seemed freer. And then she kind of rose in the yeah. polls as I was working on the piece um, and became more guarded uh, as I was talking to her. I think that, you know, Warren's gotten deservedly a lot of love from pundits for having tons of plans for really thinking about her policy proposals, how she would implement them. She has this big structural critique of American politics and the economy and I think she's good at talking about all of that. I think the part she is still working on is how she talks to a crowd. Is she coming off as inspirational enough? Does she seem a little too teacherly in her presentation in a way that maybe loses some folks or just doesn't make them like completely thrilled to listen to her in the way someone like Obama, who was so magnetic, pulled off, or even someone like Bernie Sanders, who's still kind of her main rival on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So I think that um, that 
question looms out there. Is she a good enough politician to pull this off? Yeah. I have a book tour question. I'm fascinated with the, the concept of book tours. People who write books. <laughs> Josh, it's not that fascinating. But yes, I, that's, that's what I figure. Like, I think that's what <laughs> I'm getting Or I should say it's not like, that glamorous. I that's should, what I should I, say. So I, I guess I want to know, like, is it as bad as it, it sounds like it could be? What's the worst part? What's the best part? How's uh-huh. the, I mean, you've, Well, why do you think out? it sounds bad? I, because you have to sit across from strangers and answer questions into a microphone in cities far from your home on a Thursday night. Things I like see. that. <laughs> um, well, now, so I had six weeks of basically straight book tour. Right. And I did get tired, mostly. I got tired of listening to myself talk. You have to be really <laughs> nice to everyone all the time, right? Like, no one, you can't ever just be in a bad mood. People are like, they brought you to a city. They don't want to listen to you complain. And also... You want to be nice to people. You're trying to sell your book. So I found that slightly exhausting. It's not my nature to be super polite and polite. I'd be better off if I was Southern, but I'm sort of a bratty uh, Northerner and Yankee at this point. So that was slightly taxing for me. But look, I mean, really, it's amazing that you have put a lot of time into a project and people are interested in hearing about it. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Is that you have ideas and thoughts and stories and you want people to be reading the book and thinking about those ideas. So most of the time I was able to remind myself that I was incredibly lucky that anyone wanted to hear from me at all and set aside my, um, my slight, uh, exhaustion and tiredness. Do you have a horror story from the book tour that you're willing to share? (laughs) Sure. So I get car sick at the drop of a hat. Yeah. I mean, I get, at this point, it's not really the plane, it's the car. And so one thing about book tours, you're like in the back of a lot of Ubers and taxis and that's how it goes. And I had medicine, but it sort of stopped working. So there was this one day I'd arrived at Chicago. And the other thing is you lose control of your schedule. So I got to Chicago and I realized that I had to go to a TV studio that was like an hour in one direction and then drive back to something else like the event later. And it was anyway, there was a lot of traffic to get to the TV studio and I got there and I was totally nauseous. And I was like, I just have to sit on the grass. Like I can't go inside yet. So they were actually really nice. They were like, okay. (laughs) You know, I was sort of able to just be polite enough to say like, I just, you have to leave me alone for 10 minutes. I just need to sit out here and like make this headache go away. And then it was okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's when you, when you sign up to be a musician or a rock star, like, you know what you're getting into, right? You just wanted to write a book and then your publisher and whoever else folks like us drag you across the country. But, right. But uh, now it's great. Cause now I have like one appearance every couple of weeks. Yeah, so I'm like, Oh good. look, people are still interested. Yay. But I get to live in my house. Which is good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks for coming down. Charged the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration is the full name of the book. Um, it's excellent, and uh, we appreciate you coming down. I do want to clear one other thing up, though. In the Q&A yesterday in the Daily Memphian, there was a response, a statement issued by our district attorney, and it began with this New York City author. And I wonder if you want to set the record straight about so that. So I work for the New York Times. This is true. I've never lived in New York City. <laughs> okay. um, I guess maybe calling me a New York Times author would have given me too much authority, and somehow New York City made me seem more suspect. But yeah. I don't live there. Incredibly suspect. Well, thank you, Emily Bazelon, very much for joining us uh, on The Permanent Record. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks to Gil Worth and the OAM Network for hosting us and providing first-class podcast support. Uh, check them out at theoamnetwork.com. 
Thanks to you guys, the studio audience, for joining us this afternoon. Special thanks to Jeff Hewlett, whose music you hopefully hear behind me. That's a brand new version of our theme song, She Got Gone. That song and many other Jeff Hewlett originals are available now on Jeff's newest album, Around These Parts. Jeff plays live all over the place. Uh, Or you can check him out on Spotify. You can subscribe to us on Spotify. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you leave us a review and a rating, it really, really helps. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.